Hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word, Spring Break 2017. My name is Amy Foster. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Um, I love spring, and like uh, many of you, it causes me to look around my house and think about, what can I do around here to make this place look a little better? And so I'm just going to confess a little housekeeping weakness on my part. I don't polish my silver. I know you're shocked. Um, my grandmother would be shocked. My mother would be shocked. Um, and I know silver's kind of out of fashion today, so some of you younger women don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sterling silver, knives and forks and platters and coffee pots. And um, I inherited these things and the traditions that go with them from women in my life. And so younger women, I'm gonna give you a little lesson on silver today. Here's what you need to know. When it's polished, it gleams and it shines and it sparkles and it's absolutely glorious. But um, when you don't polish it without anything happening, just corrosive elements in the air cause it to tarnish. And first it just loses its shine and its sparkle and then it becomes dark and dull. And before you know it, your silver looks like pewter and then it looks like cast iron. And I know that my mother and my grandmother, if I believed in turning circles in your grave, they would turn circles. When I say this out loud, I probably hadn't polished my silver in 10 years. And it looks like pewter. I started polishing it last week. And as I was polishing, the difference, a polished piece of silver next to an old tarnished piece was so dramatic. So I've, I've given you a little picture there um, just to show you the, the difference. Um, and here's what I want you to think about. When you look at both of those silver pieces there, I want you to recognize um, both are sterling silver. Both have the exact same um, material content. Both have the same identity. Both even have the same worth. If I went to sell them, they'd be sold by weight, not by their shine. But only the shiny one, only that one is reflecting the glory that it's supposed to to reflect. Only that one is really living up to its identity because the other isn't. But here's a hard, hard lesson I think about silver. Um, it doesn't stay shiny all by itself. And once it gets tarnished, there's no easy way to make it shiny again. So the lesson here is there's no easy way with silver. There's just elbow grease all the time, rubbing away that tarnish and then keeping it shiny year after year after year. So that's my spring housekeeping lesson. Uh, today we're looking at the children of Israel and I wanna tell you they're a little like silver because God has taken the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and during their time in Egypt, he has made them so numerous just as he promised to do and then he began displaying his power in these miraculous ways, showing them who he was through the 10 plagues in Egypt. And then he heroically intervenes in that last plague and he brings them out of Egypt and he tells them there's a new calendar and now you're a new nation. He makes them his holy nation now. So it was like in an instant, he changed their identity from slaves of Pharaoh into the mighty nation of the most holy God. That was their value and their identity and their worth and it was all God's effort all God's work, he alone had done it and nothing could ever change it. But he calls them the host of Israel. Host is a military word. And even though that's their identity, they're not quite a mighty army at this point, are they? They're fickle and they're mind changing. And he says they're people who would worship God, but we don't really see a worshipful, praising attitude in them all of the time. It seems there's some tarnish on their silver. You know, they need some polishing. They need to be transformed into a people who would worship and trust God all the time. They need to be transformed into people who would shine and reflect the image of God. And so God would use a journey across the wilderness to transform them, and it would be a 40-year journey. God works the same way today. He works in our lives. He has us all on a journey, and it's a journey of transformation. Once we commit to be a follower of Jesus Christ, our identity, our value, it is secured, and it is permanent, and it is changed forever. We are an heir with Christ. 
but we don't necessarily look like Jesus in that moment, do we? It takes a lifetime of transformation, a lifetime before we are people who truly trust and are obedient and reflect God's glory. So we all are on this journey of transformation. We're gonna pick up the story when the journey begins here for the nation of Israel. I just wanna catch you up a little bit. Last week, they marched triumphantly. They marched defiantly out of Egypt after the Lord delivers them from slavery. And they go with their herds and their children and all their possessions, and they go with wealth and plunder. And all of Egypt was saying, go, go, get out, leave this place. And that's how they left. So they've just been gone a few days, and we're going to pick the story up. Exodus chapter 4, read with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So we know the story starts. They've been traveling for several days in one very clear direction, and God has been charting their course. He's been leading and guiding them. I want to direct your eyes to your verse sheet. Look at Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel both by day and night. So from the very beginning, God has been determining the direction they would take. He has been charting their course, and now he changes it completely, perhaps even turns them completely around. Here's what God's doing. He is creating one final contest between God and the Pharaoh of Egypt. And in this contest, God has a very clear goal, and he tells it to Moses in verse four. He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and his army and his host, and all of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. So in giving Moses this information ahead of time, God is giving Moses and his nation a great assurance. He's telling them he's in control of everything that's happening, and he's telling them that it's going to end well. I think it's kind of like a preview or scenes of things to come. God doesn't tell them how he's going to do it. I think it might have terrified them at this point, but he does tell them he's going to do it. And we need to recognize this at this point of the story. It's a very gracious and helpful piece of information that God is giving them that will be helpful if they remember it um, just a few hours later. So most likely when they change their direction in some dramatic fashion, um, most likely there are Egyptian military outposts all over the land, and those outposts post have their eyes trained on this group of two million Israelites who are traveling, and they're reporting back to Pharaoh everything that's happening. So the report goes back to Pharaoh that they've turned around, and Pharaoh, who has a hard and rebellious heart, which means he is always fighting and defying God, Pharaoh sees it as an opportunity. Perhaps they're confused. Perhaps they're arguing with each other. Perhaps they're lost. Pharaoh sees it as an opportunity to turn back on the Israelites who they have released and to recapture them, and that's exactly what he's going to do. But what we have to remember is it was all a part of God's action and God's plan. God certainly knew Pharaoh's hard heart, and he actually is using Pharaoh's hard heart here, and God knows what chain of events this will set in place. And so having all of that knowledge, God starts their journey in the most desperate location, and he has actually led them to this place. We've given you a map. You'll also see it on the screen today. Um, And here's what we have to say about these maps. All these geographical references, these names of places, we can't tell you where those are. They have not been accurately identified yet. And we can't even tell you definitely where they crossed the Red Sea. So those things are unknown to you. But I do want you to look on the map just so you can see the land of of Egypt. I want you to see where the territory of Egypt is. You can see where the Red Sea is. And you can even see where Mount Sinai, or we're also going to call that Mount Horeb is located. It could be there in the Sinai Peninsula. It could be over east of there. The 
big thing I want you to notice is up on the right-hand corner of the map, you'll see the Salt Sea. The land all to the west of the Salt Sea, that's Canaan. That's the promised land, and that is where God is taking them. So we don't know for sure where all these other sites are, but what we do know for sure is God knows the land, and he knows the territory, and he has told them exactly where they are supposed to go. And where that location is, it finds them with the sea behind them and the vast wilderness beside them. And Pharaoh sees that as the perfect opportunity to overtake them and recapture them. So I'm going to paraphrase the next part of the scripture for you, but Pharaoh's hard heart reacts exactly like God said it would, and Pharaoh begins to assemble his men for battle. First, he assembles his own advisors and his own chariot, and then it calls in the 600 greatest chariots in all of Egypt. This was their pride and their joy and their confidence and their trust. And so they've got the 600 best chariots, and then he pulls in the lesser chariots too. And so historians tell us that probably was over a thousand chariots, and that was the greatest military piece of equipment at that time. So we've got the chariots and their officers, then Pharaoh calls in his horsemen and the Egyptian army. And they are trained, and they are qualified, and they set out, and they make great time, and they reach the encampment of the Israelites. And Israel is right where God told them to go with a sea behind them and the massive army in front of them. That was definitely a desperate place for them to be. And as they look out with their eyes, there is no conceivable escape route for them. And it's interesting because Israel is referred to as an army, as a host there, but we know they're not really a trained army, are they? And they don't have military weapons, actually. They are an unprepared, fickle, mind-changing people. That's who they are right now. And they are traveling with animals, their herds, their possessions. They've probably got wagons and carts and women and children. So we've got a great picture here. They are geographically in a terrible position and militarily they are in a terrible position. They are disadvantaged all around and God set it up exactly that way. They are exactly where God wanted them to be. So pick the story back up with me in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." Okay, so with their backs to the sea and the Israelites out there in front of them, they look out, excuse me, the Egyptians out there in front of them, the Israelites look out with absolute terror, and to their credit, the first thing they do is cry out to the Lord, which is what we all need to do, but then they're going to do something different, and you're going to see this behavior from them a lot. They immediately lose their memory, it goes a little wonky and disoriented on them, and they immediately turn their fear, they turn that into just beating up on Moses, verbally beating him up and just unleashing hostility on him. Moses, why have you drug us out here? Now, if that's not faulty revisionist uh, history and memory, I don't know what is, because the very last chapter, four times, said it was the strong hand of the Lord that carried them out. And it actually says they left defiantly. They left triumphantly. Moses was not dragging them out. And they talk about their time in Egypt like it's got this fuzzy, beautiful haze all around it, and it was the glory days. But we know the truth. They were oppressed and treated harshly and severely as slaves while they were in Egypt. 
So I really don't think they're suggesting that they enjoyed the past and loved it. I think instead they're just making a point that they are terrified by the present. They're terrified and with no conceivable way out, they immediately assume the worst. They assume that they're all going to die. That's what they're thinking is happening here and that's why they're talking about their graves. So what else have they forgotten? They have forgotten the assurance of God that he gave them just a few verses back before any of this happened. God gave them an assurance that he was going to have the right outcome here. They're also forgetting the promise that God made years ago. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you this land. God has already started honoring that promise to them and they are forgetting. But Moses doesn't forget God's assurance or his promise. And so Moses takes this first opportunity to polish them up just a little bit. His instructions are great and timely and wonderful for all of us. He says, fear not. I think this means don't assume the worst. Fear not. Stand firm. Be confident in God. Wait for him here. See the salvation of the Lord. And then Moses gives them a little bit more of the story. The Egyptians who you see right now who look so numerous and vast, you will never see them again. And then Moses says, the Lord will fight for you, so be silent. Be silent. He's telling them, stop grumbling. Stop complaining and crying out like this. And we have such a great picture here. The Israelites are looking out, but they're looking with physical eyes. And when they look with their physical eyes, all they see is the vast oppressive army and the vast immense expanse of sea behind them. And so in this lesson, in this teaching from Moses right now, he's saying, if you wanna be God's nation, you have to learn to see with spiritual eyes. You have to use your spiritual eyes and you need to look out and see that God is with you and see that God is fighting for you. And they should be able to do this because God has been showing them who he is. That was his purpose in all those plagues in Egypt to show the Egyptians and to show the Israelites who he is. And God was introducing himself in that way. And so what they've already learned about God, he's more powerful than all of the false gods of Egypt. He's given them a new name for himself that's Yahweh. The, the self-existent, ever-present, eternal God, the God who says, I see and I hear and I come down and I act in your circumstance to accomplish my plan. God has been training their spiritual vi uh, vision through all of those plagues, but now Israel would have to grow and mature and they would have to use that spiritual vision when it's needed. And if they do use that vision, here's what they're gonna see. God is in this with you and the battle is not about us. The battle is about God. The battle is about his plan and his glory. And that's something we all need to see. And I think if we're honest, we can acknowledge that we have all been in desperate places in our lives, haven't we? You've probably talked about that a little in your time today. We've encountered desperate places where there seems to be no good outcome, where the rescue plan seems inconceivable. And in all of our lives, those desperate places, they are polishing opportunities. They are moments that God can transform us if we handle them correctly. Those are the times we too have to see with spiritual eyes and remember who God is and remember that he fights for us. So for me, I can really personalize these instructions. When he says, fear not and stand firm, I think for me that means in a desperate place, don't collapse, don't crumble in despair, don't desert to the other side, and don't go make my own crazy plan to try and circumvent what's happening here. Just stand firm and wait for God's plan. And then watch for the salvation of the Lord and be silent. I think he wrote this to women. Be silent, you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're lamenting and talking about how terrible the circumstances are. You are uh, expressing a lack of faith in God and you're tearing down your own faith. So fear not, stand firm, be silent. And then through Moses, God reveals this most inconceivable plan. Tell the people to go forward. They're facing the sea now and God says, go forward. I'm gonna turn the sea into dry land. Uh, go forward is actually a military term. It means break camp. Have to remember there's two million of them and all their stuff. And so break camp means pack up their belongings, gather their herds and their children, organize the people into ranks. And that's gonna take some time. So God is getting them ready for God's great miracle. 
A miracle, we've talked about this a bit because everything he did in the plagues, those were miracles. It's a supernatural intervention by God into the natural order. Okay, so God coming in and turning the natural order upside down. And God does this for several reasons. He does it to display his glory. He does it to make himself known. And he also does it for the benefit of his followers. It's part of our polishing process. It's part of our transformation process. And that's exactly what he's going to do here in this miracle. We'll start reading again in verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw them into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. All right, first, God will miraculously protect them while they pack up and break camp and prepare to cross. He does this by moving the cloud. The cloud had been going before them to guide them, and now God moves it to the back. You have to remember the cloud was a visible symbol of the presence and guidance of God. It was a symbol for people who needed to still see something with their eyes. As God moves the cloud from the front to the back, he's communicating not just his presence guiding them, but his presence also protecting them. And what we know about this miracle is that it was this dark barrier that stayed in between the two camps so that the Egyptians could not cross over and attack the Israelites while they're packing up and it stayed there all night long as a symbol of God's protection. Next, the east wind begins to blow. You may remember we've seen the east wind before. It's what blew all the locusts in a few chapters back. Now God uses the east wind to blow, and it blows so powerfully it divides the waters. And the land between the waters becomes firm and dry so the people can walk right through it. And it's described as walls of water on both sides of them. Now that term divided the water is really interesting. It's, it's used multiple times in the Bible, and divided suggests strong, massive, high walls. It's the same word that's used for the walls that surround a city, and you know those walls were built for protection, and they were usually about 20 feet high. So we've got a picture of walls of water that are just like protective walls around the city, 20 feet high, certainly suggesting deep, deep water in a deep, deep sea. Psalm 78, 13 on your verse sheet, this also describes it. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and he made the waters stand like a heap. Now, we don't know how wide this pathway through the water was, but we know two million people and their wagons and their carts and their herds, they had to pass through it, and we know that the ground was firm and dry for them. They walked right into the midst of the sea, but God was with them, and because God was with them, they were mercifully protected and they were delivered safely to the other side. 
But next, this pillar of cloud that's been standing between Egypt and Israel, now it allows the Egyptians to come through. And the Egyptians also march right into the sea, but God was not with them. He wasn't with them. He was in the cloud up above. And because God was not with them, at some point during the pre-dawn hours when it's still dark, the ever-present God, the ever-powerful God intervenes even more and he throws them into total chaos and total panic while they are trying to cross. And their terror absolutely overwhelms them. We've got a great and vivid account of this in Psalm 77. You'll find this also on your verse sheet. And it's suggesting God not just miraculously parting the waters but working in all of nature to create this chaos. Psalm 77, 17. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world and the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen." So now in the midst of all this chaos, we've, we've got the, the chariots rushing into the midst of the sea, rain, thunder, lightning, whirlwind, maybe the earth is shaking a little bit, and these thin, swift wheels of the chariots, they start bogging down, they start clogging, we don't know if they're sinking in the mud, they're breaking, they're snapping, they're falling off, and the Egyptians despair immediately because the Egyptians recognize the presence of God, and they say, exactly what Moses said in uh, verse 14. The Lord fights for them. The Lord fights for them. They recognize him. They, they see his footprints there, I think, in all of those catastrophic events. So God graciously, excuse me, miraculously moves the waters a second time now. And as he moves the waters and releases these walls, gravity goes back into effect and those massive walls crash down with great force covering the Egyptians. And the text tells us not one remained. Not one. It's such a picture of the totality of God's power and his judgment. Not one Egyptian remained. And then the timing is really important here because as the sun comes up and the daylight breaks, and all the Israelites can see perfectly clearly with their eyes, they look around and here's what they see. They look to their sides and they see all of Israel, two million people standing safely on the other side of the shore and their feet are dry. But they look out there in the water and on the shoreline and there's bodies of dead Egyptians floating there and maybe dead horses. And there's the mangled, crumpled, destroyed pieces of chariots and mighty weapons of war floating there in the water. And they look out and they see that vast expanse of water that physical eyes said inconceivable, impossible, unbelievable, no way to cross it. But if they look with spiritual eyes, they'll see the footprints of their God who was mighty and powerful and with them. Look at verse 30 and 31. It says, when they saw these things, the result was they feared God and they trusted God and they even trusted Moses because he was God's servant. So we see real progress there and the progression is what they see with their eyes starts moving into their heart and they start being a people who don't just bear the name of God, now they trust God, and now they believe in God, and this is great growth for them. You know, this miracle is referred to so many times in all of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've just looked at two references in Psalms. It's matched by only one other miracle in the Bible, and it's the New Testament miracle when God rescues his people and triumphs ultimately over his enemy, and that's the miracle where Jesus agreed to get on a cross and pay for our sins, and then three days after his death, he miraculously is resurrected back to life. And God's enemy, Satan, death, hell, sin, is completely overcome in that moment. Because if we are honest, we all have to acknowledge we've all been in a terribly desperate place where um, eternal life 
stands on one side and eternal condemnation, separation from God because of our sins stands on the other side and we all know that there is no conceivable way for us to carry ourselves over to the eternal life side. The only way is a miracle, a great work of a rescuing God. He makes a way for all of us. So in our Bibles, we've got these two great miracle stories. Two great miracle stories, but here's what I want you to remember today. Neither one of them are the end of the story. They're the beginning of the story. And everything that comes after is about the transformation of God's people. It's the transformation of God's people, Israel, and for us, it's the transformation of you and me as we become people who reflect God's image in the world. What happens next in our text, I, I love it because when they kept asking Pharaoh to leave, they always said, let us go on a journey so we can worship the Lord. And in response to this great miracle, their immediate response is to worship the Lord. And that's what they do in the next chapter, chapter 15. They're actually retelling the story of God getting them across the sea, but they're gonna tell it in poetry form this time. So it's going to be a little more uh, poetic and vivid and perhaps dramatic here. I'm gonna summarize this for you just to save us a little bit of time. They begin in chapter 15 in this psalm or song by expressing their personal faith and their personal relationship to a holy God. I'm gonna read these first two verses and I want you to look closely at the pronouns that are used. It's not about a nation here, it's all about I, me, and mine. They say, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So I love seeing that the beginning of their transformation is them recognizing they have to make a personal choice to follow this God, to be a member of his nation, and we make the same personal choice to be a member of God's family and his church. Um, we, we see an example in John 1.12. This is talking not about people who choose to be a part of the nation of Israel, but people who choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It says, to all who received him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to be children of God. So we have a great picture there that each person must make a personal choice to have a relationship with this God. And then the song goes on and it really talks about the power and the strength of God, the God who is so mighty, he just blows gently and he parts the waters. Listen to how his power is described here, beginning in verse seven. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood in a heap, the deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You're, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. So who is like you? The answer is clearly no one. No one is like God. He's just shown them he controls the wind and the water and the ground and nature and he's even controlling the hard hearts of men and their response is to recognize and to worship. He's awesome and he's wonderful. Next, it goes on and it, it discusses and praises God because he's faithful to fulfill his promise and he's capable of, of bringing about his plan. This is really God's sovereignty as he is working to accomplish his plan in the world. Listen to what it says in verse 14. The people have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you have purchased. 
you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So he talks about God's sovereign ability to accomplish his plan, and not just in defeating the current enemies, the Egyptians, but God's already doing this work to defeat the next enemies, the people who inhabit the land that God is going to take them to, the land that is going to be there. When it refers to Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan, Those are the countries that border and inhabit the promised land where God is taking them. Those are the people who are going to have to be um, subdued, deposed, so that Israel can come in. And God is already making that possible by creating terror and fear in them and showing everyone that he fights for the Israelites. And then they end with this beautiful proclamation, the Lord will reign forever and ever. They're focusing on the fact that the Lord is eternal. He's just not the God of this nation of Israel as it exists today. He's the God of everything forever. And then we get this interesting little addition here. It tells us that Miriam the prophetess comes out and she leads the women in a worshipful response also. Now we remember Miriam, we've seen her before. She's the sister of Moses and Aaron. She was the girl who stood on the banks of the Nile while Moses' basket was floating there. She's the girl who said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go get a hero, a Hebrew wet nurse for the baby? We've seen Miriam before. It tells us that she was a prophetess. That means she was a woman who received instructive words from God to share with the people. And we're going to see her doing that in the future. One thing that I thought was pretty fun, she's probably in her 90s and she's shaking a tambourine and singing in front of the women. So we're never done, ladies. Um, It says she's going to lead them in in this song. And it it doesn't give us the whole song, but if you'll look at it, it starts, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. That's the exact same way Moses' song began. It's the same song. That's actually the title. So she leads the women in the entire song that Moses has just completed. Um, and, And we always have to remember, in the ancient world, they followed an oral tradition. They passed on their history and their teaching and their truth through songs. So this is really important. What we learn when we see Miriam here teaching the women this song, we see women have a role to play in God's new nation. The men, the fighting men were the ones who got counted, you know, when they said there were 600,000 fighting men, but the women are recognized too. They're recognized as women who God did a miracle to save, and they're women who would have their own personal response and choose to be a part of God's nation, and they're women who would then contribute to preserving his work and proclaiming his name to the next generation. That's why they would need to know this song also. So once they cross this sea, the Israelites begin what would be a three-month journey, and now they're traveling to Mount Sinai, or it's also called Mount Horeb. This is the place where Moses encountered God in the burning bush, and God promised, Exodus 3.12, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So now they are continuing their journey, and they're moving towards Mount Sinai, and God takes them straight from a desperate location to a bitter location. So let's read about that beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm springs, palm trees, and they had camped there by the water. 
All right, two important things we need to know when we think about this next part of their journey. God does not give them an assurance this time. He gave them an assurance when they set out before they hit the Red Sea. This time, he doesn't tell them, you're going to get very thirsty, but I'm ultimately going to provide for you. The other thing we need to know in verse 25, he says, I was testing you. He's reflecting back on what's already happened, and he said, it was a test. So without any verbal reassurance, without any verbal assurance of what's happening, we see God is treating them differently on this leg of the journey, and it's just a few days later. I think we can understand God is expecting some growth and some maturity from them after witnessing that miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And you know, when I was studying this, I remembered when my, when my sons were little bitty and I would leave them with a babysitter or here at the church, they would be afraid and I would have to give them assurance Mommy's coming back. In just a little while, I will come back. I'm not leaving you forever. But as they grew and they matured, I didn't have to keep assuring them of that. They learned my behavior because I always came back, and they knew my character because they'd been learning that about me. And so as they matured and grew, I had to give them fewer and fewer verbal assurances. I think God is doing the exact same thing with his children here. I think he's not giving them the assurance because he wants them to trust in what they've already seen here. So giving them no assurance, he takes them to the next place and they're thirsty and it's a dry, bitter place with no water and here's the test. Would they trust God when the place is bitter and dry? And here's the answer, no, they don't. And it's so disappointing, but let's consider they've been in the wilderness for three days. Wilderness in the Eastern world does not mean trees and lions and tigers. It means dry, arid, rocky, desolate land, um, hardly any shelter from the sun. And they've been traveling there for three days. At some point along those three days, they have run out of all the water that they were carrying. I'm sure they expected around every corner God was directing them to water, but that didn't happen. And when they finally get to Mara and they can see the water, their spirits soar, but someone tastes it and the water's bitter and they can't drink it. Now, personally, I am always inclined to be hard on the Israelites because I know how the story ends. Um, But I just want to consider for a minute three days in those kind of conditions Three days of that, no water, no shade. Let me remind you, they are traveling day and night. I don't know when they rested. So in my imagination, they're sunburned. Their lips are chapped and cracked and blistered. Their backs and their legs are tired and fatigued. Their feet may be blistered. And if their own discomfort isn't difficult enough, they have elderly and they have children with them. Women, can you imagine if they're looking out at little sunburned faces and little chapped lips and little dry mouths asking for water? I would fail this test too. I know I would. And I had to recall as I studied this, I'm not proud of this. I have had moments in my past when I've shaken a fist at God. And every time it was because my children were suffering. That's a great vulnerable spot for many people and it was a vulnerable spot for them too. So I I think we can have some compassion. And as that broke my heart, God gave me a little comic relief and I realized they were the very first hot mess. And there were 200 million of them, so they were probably the biggest hot mess that we've ever seen to date. That's what they were, traveling through that dry land and God said it was a test. So let's talk for a minute about tests. Tests are designed to reveal strengths and weaknesses, right? If you think about um, a teacher, they test a student. They wanna know they've mastered the entry-level material so they can now move on to the more difficult material. We test things because we want them to grow and improve and mature and get better. And that's the same reason God tests. He tests because he expects us to grow and mature and get better. 
Paul actually describes the version of growth that we experience in the New Testament in Philippians 3.13. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we're all supposed to be growing and maturing. I think we also need to stop and think, does God test because he needs to know our strengths and weaknesses? He made us. He knows everything. He tests so we will know our strengths and our weaknesses. As I studied this, I realized miracles reveal God's character, but tests reveal man's character. So God is allowing this test so that they could understand their own character. Three days in, they're tested, and they immediately grumble against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? What shall we drink? God's led them to a place where they can be tested and also where they can experience their humanity. And I think God does that to me all the time. He lets me experience my weakness. They're tired and thirsty and weak, and they're disappointed about not finding water. They're worried and anxious about their children. And we need to stop and recognize there's absolutely no sin in our humanity, in fatigue, in weariness, in tired, in thirst. There's no sin in that. It's the grumbling. Ladies, it's the grumbling. It's a sinful attitude. And grumbling is a part of Israel's character that we're going to see more of. And it's a part of their character that God says has to be buffed away. And there's no easy, effortless way to buff it away. It takes time. But I think grumbling, for most of it, it happens to us when we let our humanity overshadow God's divinity. Our humanity eclipses God's divinity. We think our needs are too great for him to provide. We think our wounds are too painful for him to heal. And so we grumble. And they grumble against Moses here, but we know Moses is just God's spokesperson, right? So God is the one who's been leading them. So they're grumbling. It's not against Moses. It's against God. Look at Exodus 16, 8 on your verse sheet. This is Moses speaking. He said, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. For what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And that's convicting, isn't it? All grumbling, all shaking our fist at heaven, all complaining and lamenting about our bitter circumstances. It's grumbling against God. It's grumbling about the places he allows us to be. And I think it reflects an immature spiritual character in each of us. So the Israelites show their fickle, changing nature by going in a very short period of time from worshipful praise on the, on the banks of the Red Sea to grumbling and complaining when they they face disappointment and need, but God is unchanging. He isn't fickle. He remains faithful. And so in response to Moses' prayer, God brings them water. He miraculously turns the water sweet. He uses a log to do it, but we have to know the log wasn't magic. The log didn't have any special properties in it to change the water. The log was a visible symbol for people who still needed to see something visible. They still needed their spiritual vision trained here because their spiritual eyes are failing them. And then God goes on and he gives them the first rule after they fail the test. He makes it abundantly clear to them now. He has expectations of these people. What he did before his miracle, that was all his work. But what he would do now, this transforming and refining process, they would need to participate with him on this. So he asks for their participation. Um, and it says he establishes a statute and a rule. Now you need to know that's not the same thing as a covenant. We're gonna see a covenant in a few weeks. This is just a rule that's a, that's a principle that he wants them to learn. And in this rule, he asks for them to demonstrate trust. So he says, here's what he asks of Israel. First, listen to my voice. Listen to my voice, listen to the assurances I give you, listen to the laws that I'm gonna speak through Moses and do that which is right. Do what I say. He's asking for obedience. Then he says, give ear to my commands. That means pay attention, listen, value the commands that I'm giving you because they're from God and keep the statutes. Again, that means do what I say. So do you see a pattern there? Listen and do. Listen and do. It means obey me. 
God is telling them, for this transformation to work in you, you are going to have to obey me. That's what I want from you. And he says, if you do these things, then I will protect you from the plagues that I visited upon Egypt. We have to remember those plagues that hit Egypt, they were judgment. They were the judgment of God against disobedient people. So God is telling them here, I won't just be your guide and your redeemer. I'll be your healer. I'll keep you from experiencing those terrible judgments, but you need to obey me first. That's what he's offering them here. Most theologians agree this promise is limited in context, and that means this is a promise that God made to the Israelites during the Exodus. It doesn't mean we can read that today and say, if I'm obedient to God, I will never get sick. That's not what he's talking about here. It's a promise for the people at that time. So then, having failed the test, God grounds the naughty children and sends them all to bed with no supper. Mine doesn't read that way. Um, and so here's what we, we learned from that. God's tests are not sent to punish us. His tests are not for punishment. They're for training. They're to show us our shortcomings. His tests reveal the parts of our lives that need to be polished and refined. Instead, God doesn't punish them. He leads them to a place with abundant water. It says there were 12 springs of refreshing water. And I loved this part. There were 70 palm trees palm trees that would provide shade. And here was my thought as they leave Mara, having failed the test, and they see the next destination, they see those palm trees way in advance. And they see that as this beautiful oasis in the terrible wilderness. And God, again, gives them something that they can see with their eyes so they can take it down into their heart and know something about God. He's a God who cares for us. He's a God who leads us and guides us and protects us. It's a picture for them that if they will trust God, he will take care of them. So we're gonna see God continue to change the Israelites and he's changing them into a nation and he's changing them into people who their individual character actually matches the identity he's already given them. And he's doing the same thing for us and in the same way they have to participate in the journey, we have to participate too. It's God's grace in our life that allows us to change but he asks us to participate. So I think for me, looking forward, how do I participate with God's transformation in my life? I need to see with spiritual eyes. Not be so dependent on my physical eyes, but have confidence in God. That means I see the salvation of the Lord because it's already been done for me and it's already been done for you. I need to keep that before my eyes. I need to see the mighty power and the tender mercy of God's character because he's revealed that all through his interaction with mankind. And I need to see the plans of God because he's already told me what they are and he's told me how it ends and he's invited me to be a part of it. So that's how I think I can see with spiritual eyes. I need to hear with spiritual ears. And that means I need to know God's words. And I don't just need to know them, I need to do them. Know God's word, hear what he tells us about his character, hear what he tells us about his plans, hear what he tells us about the best way for us to live so we won't experience his judgment. In every test of life, I need to hear God's words. And then I need to do them. And then last, I need to live with divine expectation. You know, we serve and love a God who can be known. He's not this unknown God out there. And he shows us who he is just like he's been showing the Israelites who he is. So once I've known him, I need to expect him to continue to be God. And in each desperate place I experience, at each dry and bitter place I experience, I know who God is. I simply need to stand firm there and expect God to continue to be God. I need to not live as a person who needs to see a new miracle every day because the greatest one has already been done for me and it's been done for you. And so I need to just keep the cross of Jesus as my visible emblem of a God who reaches down and saves me with a miracle. And then his job is to work with me and transform me and you and all of us in the church till we look like his people, until we reflect his glory in the world. I'm really grateful that God doesn't rescue us to turn us into a piece of silver that sits on a shelf and stays tarnished forever. He rescues us and then he starts us on this journey 
where he's polishing off the tarnish. And he says, if you do this with me, I'm gonna make you shine like me, like my glory in the world. That's God's job. And we're all on that journey and he's not finished with any of us yet, but he's in the midst of the journey with us. Let's pray. God, you're a great God. We thank you that you've miraculously rescued us. We thank you that you've given us a place in your family. And so we ask for your grace to participate with you every day of the journey to be people who see you, to be women who hear you um, and obey you and live for your glory and your plan and your honor, Lord. That's our heart's desire. So we ask you to help us with it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.